Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Exodus 33 and 34. We'll be reading uh, throughout this, this, uh, these two chapters. I want to read all of the two chapters, but, but uh, most of it. As a church this year, we are exploring what it looks like to live in intimacy with God and cultivate intimacy with God. And as a part of this exploration this year, we are studying the book of Exodus, the narrative of Exodus in the Old Testament. And we're calling this series Deliverance because the whole point of Exodus is that um, we as uh, God's people would live in intimacy with him, right? And so the first half of the book is all about, or the first part of the book really is all about for intimacy and closeness and proximity to God, for that to be a reality, God has to deal with what is enslaving his people. And that was Pharaoh in Egypt. And God dealt with them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and delivered his people. And now they've been wandering in the wilderness and come up to Mount Sinai where they've been given uh, the covenant law of what it looks like to live in communion with God. But what we have been finding is that once intimacy with God is attained, once nearness uh, with God is attained, things are not automatically great. Intimacy with God can be a dangerous thing because of our deeply ingrained patterns of rebellion and waywardness. Israel really quickly, as we learned last week, went back to false gods. They worshiped a golden idol, a golden calf, and called that calf Yahweh and worshiped Yahweh through that calf. And God was beyond angry. He was beyond hurt. This was Israel cheating on God on their wedding night. Today, we're going to read about renewal because chapter 32 that we studied last week should be read with chapter 33 and 34. If I was a good pastor, I would have done that, but I didn't. I just let you sit with 32 for a whole week. Um, and we're now getting into 33 and 34. And this is really answers the question. If you've ever found yourself asking, what is God like? What is God like? There is no better text in the Old Testament that reveals God's character than this one. It, this is actually called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And so let's read. I'm going to pick up in chapter 33 verses 1 through 6. I'll just, you know, I'll just tell you where I'm going and you just keep following along, all right? We'll read to partly uh, chapter 34 and then I'll pray. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out all the, the people, those people. Verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not, listen to this, I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked, stubborn people, and I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> this is the Bible, guys. This is like for real. When the people heard this, these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. And if I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off all their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. And you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. 
The Lord replied, replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, this is the place, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets. Skip down to verse four. So Moses chiseled out the stone tablets like the ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed by in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground once in worship. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this stiff-necked people forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. This is God's word. Let's pray. As I pray, there's like a humming, weird, ambient noise coming out of my mic. I don't know what that is. It might be the Lord, but it might be the sound system. <laughs> I've prayed for that for a while. Just maybe today's the day. God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for... Um, this particular scripture, this is like the culmination of Exodus right here. And Lord, as I endeavor to talk about what you are like, that is a fool's errand. There's no way in the world I can, I can even begin to talk about what you are like. But Lord, I pray like Moses, you would show yourself to us. And maybe like Moses, it might not be the whole thing. It might just be part. It might just be just enough for today for us. But we need that, Lord. We've all come here as people who are like beggars, just seeking bread. So Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you, by the power of your name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give me words and cadence and tone and all of it, God. I submit all of my capacities to you. Teach us now by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So I want to start by asking the question, what is God like? And to do that, I want to share a quote from a mystic writer named A.W. Tozer. And he wrote this. 
in his book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and I commend A.W. Tozer to you. He's an incredible writer. He says this, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We are able to extract from any man a complete, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. I believe this quote shows us the absolute importance of understanding who God is. Because what we think about God will shape us and will shape our future. What we think about God will shape our destiny. What we think about God will shape the way we see ourselves and even the way we see our world. For example, if you think God is some liberal, tolerant, benevolent grandpa in the sky who acts more like a life coach than anything else and all he wants to do is sprinkle you with glitter all the time, well, that will have profound implications on the way you live and the way you act and what you believe about the world. If you think of God as like this homophobic racist who is at war with the world and just wants to fight, he wants you to fight for your God-given country, that will shape the way you act and shape the kind of person you are as well. What we think about God matters and who God is has profound implications on who we are. But this also exposes, I believe, another problem because when we think about God and God's ways, our, like our mental image of God, a lot of times our God ends up looking a lot like us. Author and New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, who teaches at teaches in Chicago, was with our staff um, a couple years ago during the year of biblical literacy and told us a story about how at the beginning of his class on Jesus, he would hand out two surveys. And the first was a set of questions about the student, what they like, dislike, and believe, and so on. And the second was the same set of questions, but this time about Jesus. And he said that 90% of the time, the answers were exactly the same. Most of us are shamefully unconscious of how guilty we are of this. Just think about this for a second. We automatically assume that God has most of all the same political stances that we do. Just think, you probably don't think about it a lot. Name any political topic in your mind and ask yourself, does God agree with me? And the answer will more than likely be, of course he agrees with you. Think about what you believe about gun control. You're like, well, that's exactly how God believes about gun control. What about immigration? Well, yeah, that's how, that's how God believes. What about nationalism? What about the economic policy? Like whatever you believe, you, you automatically assume, no, no, that's, what, that's exactly what God believes. If you're a Republican, so is God. If you're a Democrat, so is God. If you're fluid about what you believe about sexuality, you believe God is fluid as well. If you're binary, you believe well, so is God. And what I'm saying is we tend to reduce God's ways to our ways, his thoughts to our thoughts, and even what he's like to what we're like. And all of us, all of us are guilty of getting this wrong. We think God loves us the way we love, like what well, God loves the way I love, and the way that God is merciful is the way that I'm merciful. But this isn't true. God is completely other. That's what the word holy, when it pertains to God, means. God is other. A.W. Tozer goes on and he says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. We want to think that God embraces our version of justice, our version of love, our version of sexuality, our version of hate, our version of politics, our version of spirituality, but he doesn't. 
Miroslav Wolf, a professor at, uh, of theology at Yale, said that the most powerful and seductive images of God are not the ones we craft in the privacy of our hearts through reflection on his word and prayer. He says, rather the images that we have of God and what we think are true of God are the images that seep into our minds as we watch TV, absorb our socials, read books, go shopping, socialize with our community. And he says this, slowly and imperceptibly, the one true God begins acquiring the features of the gods of this world. For instance, our God simply gratifies our desires rather than reshaping them in the accordance with the beauty of God's own character. Our God then kills enemies rather than dying on their behalf as God did in Jesus Christ. See, Wolf asks, how is our version of God confronting our own desires? And the answer is God confronts our desires by satisfying them, by being okay with all our desires. And then our version of God ends up hating everyone we hate and loving everyone we love. Like Anne Lamont said, you can safely assume that you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> and this is very true. What happens when most of us, what happens that most of us, we, we project all these modern and acceptable attributes that we want our gods to have on the true God. In other, in other words, we make a God in our own image. So let, let, me, let me summarize the problem as I see it. What we think about God is important. It's so vital to our lives because it shapes who we become. What we believe about God shapes our identity, it shapes our destiny, it shapes us. And we all tend to move towards an understanding of God that we make up in our own minds that thinks a lot like us, just maybe slightly better. So what do we do? We're stuck in this circular vortex. We're like chasing our tails. What we believe about God is important, but God begins to really take on all the attributes that we have. And what we need, is what Moses has here. We need revelation. We need a true and real encounter with the living God. We need God to say to us, this is who I am and this is what my presence is like. This is who I am and this is what I'm like. We need this moment of clarity where we encounter God and in that a lifetime of questions are answered. We need this moment where we're with God, we're relating with God and then God shows us who he is. But there's only one way this happens. There's only one way a real encounter with God and a revelation of who he is comes to us. And it's so risky that Israel almost lost it. Real revelation and real encounter with God only happens through a relationship with God. And so the, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do today is almost, is almost silly unless God shows up. Because I'm going to try, my whole point is I want to show you what God is like, but the catch is you can't know what God is like unless you have an encounter with him, unless you have a relationship with him. You will not ever get to the point where God speaks over you, his name. This is what I'm like, unless you actually go into that like Moses did and like, God, I want to show me your glory. God, show me yourself. God, I want to live in a relationship with you. This is super, super scary. And Israel almost lost it. Now, I might say it takes being in relationship with God and you might think that, is, that sounds amazing. You might be like, oh my gosh, yes, that's all I've ever wanted. I want to live in relationship with God. But maybe you don't know what you're asking for. See, most people want one of two things from a religion or a faith system. They either want a formula or they want a friendship with benefits. They either want a formula, like some of you, especially the engineer type A kind of people in here, 
You want a formula. You want input that leads to a, a, a manageable and understandable output. You want something like religious activity plus morality minus sin equals God's blessing. <laughs> you're like, whoa, 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 that's a code? Wait, I can do that? I can like, and this, but this is how you're living. You're like, okay, I got, I'm gonna do the religious stuff. Okay, church, community group, prayer. Okay I, got, okay, I got the activity. Okay, morality. Okay, I'll try to be moral. I'll take out some sin. That should equal God's blessing. And then when you don't get God's blessing, you go back to your code and you're like, am I sinning? Is it morality? Is it religious activity? Look, how do I fix this thing again? And you're cracking the code. Cracking the code becomes your priority. This is, this is how you, you want a formula with God. In other words, you want control and predictability out of religion. That's what people look at when they go into religion. Like, I know, I know how to control this thing. I know that these inputs lead to these outputs. I know how to get the stuff I want from the Almighty. So I use religion to control God to get whatever I want. By the way, this completely breaks down when someone suffers. And when someone suffers in something that's beyond your control, a child, a relationship, where something like that hits you and you're like, I have no control over this. And this whole thing breaks down. The second thing that I see that people tend to want is they want a friendship with God with, just with benefits. And then this is a very crass way of saying this, but I think this is true. We want God's stuff, but we don't necessarily want the entanglement of being in a committed covenant relationship with God personally. We want the stuff, but we don't want the messy relationship. We would rather have people pray for us. No, you pray for me. I don't, I don't want to pray. That's messy. Because sometimes I pray, I don't really hear God, and I say things, and I ramble, and I can't figure it out really. Why don't you pray for, you're better at it than me. Why don't you pray for me? Why don't you read the Bible for me? I don't want to do it myself. The thing is a pretty big document. It's really confusing. It takes a lot of time to master it. I'm not going to do that. Would you just tell me what the Bible says? We would rather like to d digest Christian life and have it fed to us through podcasts. We would much rather have that done than have a real relationship with God ourselves because that's way easier. See, what we want, we want all the feels of being in a relationship, being close to God, without all the messy stuff and the hard stuff of really being in true relationship with God. And this point right here, this is actually what God proposes to Israel at the beginning of chapter 33. He actually says to them, hey, I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to lead you up out of this place. I'm going to take away all the ites, the Hivites, the Canaan, all the ites, all those people. I'm going I'm to get rid of them. I'm going to clean out the land. I'm going to give you the land I promised you. I'm going to drive out all of your enemies. I'm going to bless your life. I'll do everything I said I would do when I led you out of Egypt. But here's the thing. I'm not going to go with you myself. I, there'll be no tent, no tabernacle, no sacrificial system, no Ark of the Covenant, no presence in your midst. I mean, that's really messy stuff anyways. You, I don't know if you guys really want that kind of close relationship with me. How about this? I'm going to do everything I said I'll do, but you guys go and I won't go with you. Now, this seems like a dream scenario. For, for if, I, if that was truly given to you as a proposal, many of you would take that. I mean, we get all the good stuff of God, but we don't have all the messy stuff of being in a relationship with God. I think I want that. Like God could be a side piece. God could be like SZA's song of the weekend. Like God could be a trust fund of a dead relative, all the benefits and none of the relational requirements. Like, the, like God, you, wait, this is a thing? I can do this. I think, I think for most of our, our culture, we're trying to move more and more in this direction, especially in an enlightened modern culture. There was a debate recently held by the intelligence squared people of the United States. 
And the debate was this, and this is on NPR, someone sent me a link. The debate was, the more we evolve, the less we need God. That's what they were debating, pro and against that statement. The debate was, does God need to have a place in our life now? We might have needed a belief in God at some time before science, but now because we are so advanced as a species, we don't really need God anymore. And so they debated and they, you know, of course, how they do is they, they, everyone votes before the debate and then after the debate. By the way, before and after the debate, everyone always they, they agreed that we don't need God anymore. Okay. That's how, how it went down. We don't need God anymore. That's how the debate went down. Why? Why don't we need God anymore in our modern society? Because we have all the stuff. We have all the stuff that God promised. We have the peace and the progress, this, a system of morality, an understanding of human dignity, none of these things that were really in place before. But now we have that figured out. We don't need religion. It's all in place now. We don't need you anymore, God. Stephen Pinker, in his latest book, Enlightenment Now, makes the same basic argument. In his book, he tries to show through irrefutable statistics that human progress has declined global violence and war, has made astonishing gains against poverty, uh, the rise of tolerance and the erosion of cruelty in our world, the lengthening of lifespans, the revolutions in health, a high increase in safety, and on and on and on and on. It's a giant book. The subtitle of the book is The Case for Reason, Science and Human, uh, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. His book says we have it all. Science and advancement of the human species has given us everything we possibly need. The, the world has never been better than it is right now. And yet, as humanity has attained more and more progress, at the same time, it seems we have lost meaning. His book cannot explain why at the same time progress is happening, there is more depression, drug abuse, despair, addiction, and loneliness in the most advanced liberal societies. If the world is so advanced and the world is so great, why are we all so miserable? There's a song I shared with you actually a couple years ago, and I think it's fitting here as well, by the band The 1975. And uh, the, the writer of the song, Matty, he, he's, um, he's an outspoken humanist. And he has, this, he has this moment where he, you know, um, when doubt for, a, for an atheist is belief, right? So th this, is, this is a moment of, of doubt, which is a crack into belief, if you know what I'm talking about. So he says this, uh, I've got a God-shaped hole and it's infected. That line still haunts me. It's like I've tried to... I've tried to cure my God-shaped hole myself with everything that I can think of, and all it's done is it's infected the hole, and it's more and more noticeable. It's more and more painful. It's more, it's, it's more and more apparent in my life. I have a God-shaped hole, and it's, it's infected. That's infected. And I'm petrified of being alone, and it's pathetic. And then the chorus goes, if I believe you, will that make it stop? Like this, this ache I have, will that make it stop? If I told you I need you, is that what you want? I'm broken and bleeding and begging for help. I'm asking you, Jesus, show yourself. What, what is this? Well, I, this is so fascinating. What is this thing that 
um, these cracks uh, as um, uh, philosopher Jamie Smith calls cracks in the secular, where we have everything that we'd ever would want. So the advancement of our society and our species is beyond anything everyone, anyone would have thought possible, you know, 500 years ago. But still there's this ache and this longing. What is that? I think it's the ache that we all have no matter how advanced we get, how much we believe in the sciences and human progress, though that's all great, there is still something missing. And I think it's exactly what Moses wanted. He said, show yourself to me, God. Show me meaning. Show me yourself. The answer is not religion. Hear me, I'm not saying it's not a system of belief. The answer is God's presence. God gave Moses and Israel the opportunity to have it all, all the progress, all the advancement, all the milk, all the honey, but without him. And they wisely said, no way. They knew enough about God to go, if we had all God's stuff, but without God, this would, be, this would mean nothing. This is Moses' interaction and exchange with God. He says in Exodus 33, verse 12, you have said, Moses says, you have said, God, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Well, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you. Teach me the, what your ways, like who you are, what you're like, because I want to know you and I want to continue to find favor with you. Life with you, there is nothing like it. I, we want you more than anything else. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence, uh, the word there is like my face will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, let's make something very, very clear here. If you do not go with us, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. What if this was like literally our prayer every morning? Like, God, I want to go to work, but I'm not going to go unless you go. <laughs> like literally, we'll not go. Like what if that was our heart? Like our heart was so, I want the presence of God to go with me everywhere. God, how else will people know I'm set apart? I'm yours unless you go with us. I mean, this should, this, this, Moses gets it. Moses knows enough about God to get this here. Don't leave me. You can actually keep the stuff, God. You, we want you. That's, all, that's what we want. Now what's happening here? What's happening in this whole exchange? What's happening here is relationship. This is a back and forth relationship with God. This is God saying, you know, Moses, I, I, I can't go with you guys. You, the people are so stubborn. They're so irreverent. They literally just made a holy calf and worshiped it and said it was me. I, I can't do it. And Moses says, God, if you don't go with us, we're not going. You have to go with us. We're your people. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And Moses said, okay, listen, if you don't go, we don't go. And then God's like, okay, deal, I'm in. And then Moses says, and he's, it's almost like they're in, they're in relationship, they're in relationship, and then Moses asks for a little bit more. God, could I see your glory? <laughs> like he's, he knows that the relationship, the relationship has got to a place where it's there. He can like ask a, like a really important deep question that he can never ask before. It's like, can, can I see your glory? And God basically says, well, kind of. You, you can't see my face, but you can see my back. Now, by the way, I don't know what that means. <laughs> don't ask me what that means. If you know what it means, maybe you should write a book about it. But I know, I, I have not found anyone who knows what that means. 
He's like, you can't see my face and live, but you can see my back. And you know what? I have this place that's really near me. I'm going to hide you in this rock. I'm going to pass by you, and then I'll proclaim my name over you. This here is relationship. This is like uh, a back and forth relationship with God. This is why the writers of the New Testament say Moses talked with God as face to face as with a friend. This is why they talk about Moses' relationship, about the relationship that Christians could have now because of Christ. Like this is profound. This, this here is what we're, this is what, uh, this is the only way to find out what God is like. It's to be in relationship with him. I, I'm gonna, about to show you what he says in a second, but to be honest, it doesn't mean anything unless you're in relationship with him. I can, I can try to tell you what God is like, but you will not know it unless you are in relationship with him. The relationship that outdoes anything else that God can give. Like that sort of thing. And ask anyone who lives in close intimacy and proximity with God, they would go, listen, I would give up anything for this. And David says, I, I just, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like every day, all day, I just don't want to do anything else. Anything else. Ask me about anything. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I'd rather just be with God. Like this, this is, if, if you get there, this is it. This is life. Because the greatest gift God can give us is himself, like his presence. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean that in a very dangerous way. Because look, Moses asks for more. He asks for more. And God says, I'll show you my back. And this is what happens. When God hides him in the, that rock and, walks and passes by him, this is what God says to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. Now, by the way, this is the, this is the first time in the scriptures that we get a thorough self-disclosure of God. Like, what is God like? And you're like, well, he's kind of like this. He's kind of like that. Well, you can also just go ask God, God, what do you like? And it's right here in Exodus 34. He's like, this is who I am. Here it is. And some of you guys like this until you get to the end. You're like, whoa, whoa, what the, what the hell's up with that end part? Like, I'm all in it. I'm in 100%. And then you get to the end about him punishing things. That seems mean. So let's talk about this. He says, the Lord, the Lord. That's his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Now, let's just, let's just sit with this for a second. First of all, notice all of these words are relationship words. This is all about God and how he relates to his people. So when God shows himself, he doesn't say, Moses, I'm going to show you who I am. And he doesn't list off attributes. He doesn't say, I am all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere, all the time. He doesn't list off attributes. When God reveals himself to Israel, when God reveals himself to Moses, he does so through relationships and relationship words. He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate. That's a relationship word. This word, uh, theologian uh, Phyllis Tribble has effectively made the case that this term is related to the noun, the Hebrew noun for womb. What, what God is saying is that I am, I am um, uh, like a mother towards her child. I have womb-like mother love. That's what I'm like. That is a relationship word, by the way. Like a mother's love, all the moms that were up here, the love towards their child, that womb type love. God's like, compassionate, that's me. That's what I'm like. That's what I'm like. Gracious. This word is unmerited favor given without cause or warrant. Just like a, a, a baby, like you did nothing to deserve my love, but all of my love is for you. 
And then the next phrase, slow to anger. Now notice, it says slow to anger, not I never ever get angry. Some of you guys just hear slow and you don't even hear anger part. Like, oh my gosh, God, he's slow to anger. Yeah, but there's anger in the word. He gets angry. Every relationship, there's anger involved. If it's a holy relationship, anger is involved. Because in, in relationship, you can hurt one another. In any, in any real relationship, you can hurt each other. And when sin is done in a relationship, there is righteous and right anger. Whether it's a parent to their child, it's, uh, it's in a, um, a spousal relationship, if it's in a friend relationship, if it's in a working relationship. Anger, righteous anger is a part of that because you could sin against the other person. But God being slow to anger means that God will put up with a great deal because of his own powerful resolve to sustain the covenant with Israel. So when God got angry when Israel was sinning with the golden calf, I mean, he was building up to that anger. If you read the wilderness wanderings, they were complaining a lot, a whole lot. And then finally, when God shows himself to them and reveals his glory in a mountain, and he says, here's all the covenant. Do you say yes? They're like, we'll do it all. And then they don't do it. And they break half of the commandments on the first night. Then yeah, God was slow to anger, but he got angry. That's the thing. This might, this might scare you a bit. But being in relationship with God is being in relationship with a righteous God that has anger. He also says he's abounding in love. He's overflowing in his rugged commitment to the promise he made to his people. He's, he, he has a covenantal love that's rugged, that keeps on loving. Through, even through your sin, he keeps loving you through it. Even though through that sin, he might be punishing. Even though through that sin, he might be purifying. Even though through that sin, he might be disciplining. It's all done with abounding love. He says faithfulness is next. This is his complete reliability and his consistency to his own character. Not only is he abounding in love, he says he maintains love. And the number here is to thousands. I maintain love to thousands. Now, lock, uh, remember that. Hold on to that because we'll come back to that in a second. And he says, and I'm forgiving. Because every relationship needs forgiveness. This word literally means to lift. God says he lifts us he lifts off us the heavy burden of our sin. Because sometimes sin is, is like a weight and it weighs us down. Like it literally weighs our bones down. It weighs us down so much that it becomes a, like a oppression or even a depression. And God said, I, I can lift that from you. There's seven words or terms here that God says that he is. Seven to show how committed to Israel he is. And all of these words are to be taken as a whole. These seven words talk about how he's really in relational commitment to Israel. But remember, there are also two negatives at the end. God does not leave the guilty unpunished, meaning he does not acquit sin, and he visits the guilty with punishment. And it says to the third and fourth. Now, we might think God is just glitter bombs everywhere on everyone who ever does anything bad and he showers everyone with forgiveness. But that would be a very wrong picture of the true and living God. God is just. God is not like a judge who winks at the guilty and says, you're free. 
Like, hey, you're free. He doesn't wink at the drunk driver who killed a family of four saying, you know what? You had a lot to celebrate the night you were drinking. I get it. You're free. He doesn't do that. He doesn't wink at the law enforcement officer that takes the life of an unarmed man and say, it was dark and you had to make a judgment call. I get it. You're free. When that happens in our society, something in us gets so angry. God is just. God is just. He is not like an unjust judge. If he was, he would not be holy enough to be worshiped. God is other. God takes every offense that you do as big as a murder and as small as hatred in your own heart. And he hates it. He just, he does it, he hates it. He doesn't go, well, this one's not as bad as this one, so it's all good. He's completely and utterly holy, so he hates all of it. He's completely compassionate and full of love, and he judges sin. And if you, if you want to learn how to relate with God, you should get a hold, get your mind around both of those things. And it might seem like a contradiction to you, to be honest. That's hard to do. That's hard to deal with. Like, oh, how, wait, wait. How is he completely forgiving and he judges sin? How does he do that? How is he abounding in love but also doesn't let the guilty go unpunished? How does he do that? Well, first of all, here's a couple of hints. He uses seven words to describe the characteristics of love and compassion and forgiveness and slow to anger. He uses two words to describe how he judges sin. He uses, when he says, I, I show um, forgiveness to thousands or love to thousands, he says thousands and then he visits the sin of a few. There's, the, the way it's written, the, the, there's a complete imbalance here. But, it, but, it's, but it's not an imbalance that would, that would tilt towards, well, God's just lenient. It's an imbalance toward God in his judgment is restorative. God doesn't go, oh, I can't wait to punish you for that thing. I can't wait to completely destroy your life because you did that thing. God in his, in his loving, kindness, forgiveness comes upon sin to restore that person out of sin. To restore Israel out of sin. To restore us out of sin. And both of these things seem contradictory. And if they do seem contradictory to you and they seem intention, you, I, I'm, th there's part of me that just says, that's just, you have to leave it there. You have to leave the contradiction there. You have to leave the tension there. The reason why is because the writers of Exodus, when they were writing these words down of God, they allowed both to be in contradiction and tension to live side by side. That God is good and that he is God and that he forgives sin. And then God is good and that he deals with violators of, of, of sin. And as you read this text, it gives, us, it gives us no hint of how to work out this contradiction. Mo God just says, Moses, I'm both of these things. I'm completely loving and forgiving and I punish sin. That's who I am. And if you get to know me, it might make sense and more and more sense to you. See, the entire Old Testament lets this tension breathe. It's all over the place, all over the Old Testament. And it's not really, and the thing is this, it's so quick in a sermon, I hate doing this, oh, I hate doing this. It's beautiful, but you have to kind of read the whole Old Testament to really understand it. This tension does not even begin to get solved until Jesus, where Jesus bears both the, 
the righteous judgment of God and the forgiving love of God in himself. Like he becomes that, that, that meeting point of the, the, these two seeming contradictions or these two tensions. He takes them in himself. Yes, God is just and God is love both. And he becomes for us the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus does. Now, however, to think that Jesus tames God would be a mistake. For you to think, oh, thank goodness. I'm in relationship with Jesus now, not this guy in the Old Testament. That would be a big mistake. God does not tame, uh, Jesus does not tame God for us. That is not what happens. He definitely makes God, because, you know, Moses wants to relate with God face to face. Moses seems like a rare person that actually gets to do this. All of Israel, um, if you remember from earlier, is afraid of God. Like, no, you talk to God, Moses. We don't want to talk to him. We're too scared of him. Moses is like, okay, I'll talk to him for you. But Jesus makes God, makes God come near to us. But that doesn't mean he tames him. That would be a huge mistake. God, he reveals that being in relationship with God is just as complex and beautiful and risky as what Israel discovered in following God in the wilderness. Following Jesus does not tame this God. Following Jesus allows us to relate with God on the basis of, yes, you're completely loving and forgiving and holy and you know how to discipline and punish my sin by taking my sin upon yourself and then when you give to me, it's this restorative judgment always. Always working towards restoration in me. You're always punishing my sin or disciplining me in my sin as a, a parent would a child. In order to rid me of this wayward bentness, way that I'm bent towards myself or bent towards harming others, God, you want to get that out of me. But to think that it tames God is wrong. When you are in relationship with God, it is insanely, I would say, risky. He can call you to do things and to say things and to leave things and to say yes to things or to say no to things that could destroy your portfolio and your career path. That can completely destroy it. Following God is, in relationship like this is a very risky thing. I think of the, that really cute section in Lion and Witch in a wardrobe where, they're, where Susan is about to meet Aslan the, and, he, and she just dawn, dawns on her that he, Aslan's a lion. For the whole time she thought Aslan was a man. And she's like, a lion? I thought I was meeting a man. I'm like, no, a lion. Like, a lion? Well, well is he safe? This lion's safe? And they're like, no, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. He's not safe, but he's good. And a lot of us think that we're, when we approach Jesus, we're like, oh, he's a man. He's just a guy, he's a person. He's so easy, so relatable. And we're like, no, he's God. Whoa, whoa, wait. He's God? Is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's God, but he's good. And the way he deals with our sin is good. And the way he deals with our longings is good. But I can't, I can tell you this, guys and gals. I can tell you this, but, I, but until you experience it in relationship, it's, they're just words. So I can't, I, I can tee this up. I can say, God, this is what you're like. But at the end of the day, you have to see this for yourself. You have to experience this for yourself. You ha I can explain how sweet something is, but until you taste it, that's the only way you're really going to know. 
So as we end, would you close your eyes with me for just a second? Thank you for your patience today. It feels like a little, a little bit long. But as we enter into a time of response, uh, we're going to take some time to consider what God wants us to know about who he is right now. And one of the things that I, I really want, I want you to hear my words right now. Just listen. With your eyes closed, listen. God does speak. I know there are people that really struggle with hearing God's voice. And a lot of self-doubt creeps in. You might think you heard something from God, but then immediately that in your mind you're like, that can't be God. That's just my wishful thinking. I want to just spend a second in connecting with Jesus in a way this morning that we know he's near. So close your eyes. If you could, put out your hands with your palms up in your laps. It's like in a receiving position. Like if I was to hand you something. We just heard about how Moses had an intimate relationship with God face to face like a friend. And how the Lord shared who he was with Moses. This is what I'm like. There was like no distance between them. Yes, he saw his back and not his face, but all that tells us there might be even levels of intimacy. Like it starts off with seeing his back and then we get to see his face. We don't know. But there was no need for a mediator. It was God and Moses. And for us, our mediator is Jesus. There is no need for another mediator. I don't have to pray for you. Though prayer is amazing, you can hear God yourself. The Lord's presence was with Moses. So, in this moment right now, just between you and God, get a sense of where his presence with you is right now. He said he would never leave you or forsake you. If you can, try to locate him. Where is he? Where is God? And draw near him. As you connect with God, I'm going to pray now that every demonic spirit would be, would leave. Everything that would lie to the children of God, every false voice that would want to speak to these sheep would be gone in Jesus' name. As you connect with, the, with God, simply ask him this question. Lord, what do you want me to know about your holiness and your goodness and your love? Be still for just a minute to listen to what he's telling you. And allow your heart to respond to his words to you. The things he wants you to know about himself today. Holy Spirit, come. You might be given a vision, an impression, a phrase, a single word. I trust that God is speaking. For those that think that's wishful thinking, I was actually thinking that last night, it just popped into my head again right now. That, 
That could be God. Would you receive that now as the voice of God speaking to you? If any of you in here heard a condemning word, like a word that makes you want to run, and you're a Christian, let me remind you, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If there is a voice that you heard that makes you want to run, that was the voice of the enemy, not the voice of God. And so maybe God does want to tell you though something about that that scares you, but God would never make you run from him. He would draw you to him. So whatever that is that you heard, would, would you be drawn to God through that? If you heard something condemning that made you want to run and you're not a Christian today, that could very well be your conscience. That can very well be the voice of the enemy that wants to push you as far away from God so far that you would never step through the foot of these doors ever again. And I believe that that's from the enemy. And I want to pray that today you would, you would reach out to Jesus and you would trust him, that you would follow him, that you would say, help me, save me, God. I'm a sinner. And for those of us that were drawn with maybe kindness and words of love or a vision or something, you're like, oh, that's so wishful. I don't know if that's even God. Just receive it. It's from God today. And respond, whether it's through receiving communion or prayer or carpets. We hear God. Receive that today. Lord, thank you for the way that you've met us today. Speak to us even more and more and more. We trust by the spirit of the living God that lives in us, we can have a relationship with you, God, where we can hear you. We can seriously hear you. And I pray that you would speak over to us about your character and your love and your grace and also the fear of God. Put the fear of God in us, Lord. A fear that's like, I, God is real. He's, I'm in a real relationship with him and I could, I can jack that up. Bring in our lives a holy fear of who you are. We love you, Jesus. We respond in Christ's name. Amen.